you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. We'll begin in verse 2. And you can also find that on page 958 of the Pew Bible. Just for the sake of time, to just remain seated. I will read our text from 1 Corinthians 11, 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman wears long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We ask that your spirit would come now, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are happy in Christ, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it wasn't until last Wednesday, during the staff meeting, that I put together that I'd be preaching this text on Mother's Day. And my first thought was to myself was, what were you thinking? Did you really have to preach three sermons on chapter 10, verse 23 and 11? One, look where that landed you. Nevertheless, the Lord is always faithful to remind me that every word he inspired is not only pure, but it's for our ultimate good and for the ongoing health of his church. So, sisters in the Lord, take heart this morning that what is written here is not to squash you. Sin and rebellion against God squash you. What is written here, what the Holy Spirit moved the Apostle Paul to write as an abiding word to all generations of men and women, is meant for your good and the church's edification. These words are not written to place unnecessary burdens on us, but to free us, men and women who live under the Lordship of Christ, 
to live with each other as God intended. In fact, this passage only further encourages us to live the kind of life we've spent three, the last three weeks reviewing. The life that does everything to see God glorified among all peoples. Paul does not somehow stop thinking about the glory of God when he turns to the subject of manhood and womanhood in the local church. His entire argument regarding women praying and prophesying with the appropriate adornment is grounded in God's perfect rule over everything, His good designs in the created order, and His marvelous work of grace through Jesus Christ. And no demeanor or attitude as men and women should hinder God receiving all the praise and glory and honor in our corporate gatherings such as this. Even in the ways husbands lead their wives and wives submit to their husbands. So Paul's words are not out of place, as some people have said, but rather fitting for where he left off in chapter 10, verse 31. Do everything to the glory of God. While chapters 8 to 10 showed us how to glorify God in the public square, chapters 11 to 14 will now show us how to glorify God in corporate worship. Whether that be through the recognition of headship when praying and prophesying, which we'll cover today, or a proper participation in the Lord's Supper, which will begin next week, or the edifying use of our spiritual gifts in chapters 12 to 14. So these aren't just disconnected subjects that have no aim. Rather, Paul intends to see the entire church built up to glorify God in every context, especially the context of corporate worship. The specific issue he turns to in verses 2 to 16 is that of men and women prophesying within the local church. He commends them in verse 2 for remembering the pattern of the apostles' teaching, which has special bearing on how we live and devote ourselves to one another. He commends them where he sees Christ working in them to will and to do according to his good pleasure. But there's something further he desires to clarify. Something further regarding what it looks like for a man and a woman who are married to prophesy and pray in corporate worship. Paul desires to clarify how a God-centered view of manhood and womanhood affects the way men, and especially women, prophesy in the local gathering. In particular, Paul wants to give them further instruction on how a biblical understanding of headship affects order in corporate worship. You see, Paul knows how fallen and broken and self-centered and God-ignoring the world and the culture around us is He knows how sinners forsake what is good to practice what is evil. He knows that since Adam and Eve rebelled against God, every man is born a rebel against God's good created order for his servant leadership. He knows also that every woman is born a rebel against God's good created order for her glad submission to that leadership. And even among those of us for whom the power of reigning sin has been broken through our faith union with Jesus Christ, even we are still vulnerable to remaining sin and the God-ignoring lure of the world. 
So Paul seizes the opportunity to ground the church deeper in what the gospel teaches regarding headship and its expression in corporate worship. And we see this most clearly in verse 3, where he lays down the fundamental principle driving everything he says in this passage. So if you get lost in all the difficulties of verses 4 to 16, go back to verse 3. Make it part of you and read them again. And here's the fundamental principle Paul establishes in verse 3. Very simply, everyone has a head. Every Christian man and woman who no longer submit to the world, to the flesh and to the devil, but to Christ as Lord, every Christian man and woman has a head. That is to say, in God's scheme of things, every one of us is under an authority. Paul's using the word head in verse 3 to refer to authority or headship. Verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So every one of us who are part of God's new community, the church, must realize that we're all under authority. Now that's not to say that non-Christians are not under God's authority. Psalm 2 tells us that Christ himself reigns over all the rebellious nations. But that's not Paul's emphasis here. Paul's emphasis here is to set forth what headship looks like played out in the new community of God's saints. Until all of Christ's enemies are put under his feet, his unique rule is put on display through the local church. And one of the ways Paul says that Christ's rule is displayed is by recognizing that we all live under a head, under a Authority. And he lays out three aspects of this headship. First off, the head of every man is Christ. We also know this from Ephesians 1.22. And God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Every man in the church is subject first and foremost to Christ. Since he is Lord over the church. Every man stands under his headship and authority, and they should relate to no one apart from that headship. The same is true of all Christian women. But, but since Paul's focus is on the manner a wife carries herself when praying or prophesying, he turns next to the husband's headship over the wife, saying, the head of every wife is her husband. Now, Paul expands on the husband's headship over his wife in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 24. He says there, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands, should submit in everything to their husbands. God's special design for the wife in a marriage is that she, out of reverence for her Lord and Savior, chapter 5, verse 21 of Ephesians, and with spirit-filled desire to see Christ displayed as king over her life, Ephesians 5, 18, that she willingly submit to her husband's authority and gladly embrace his headship. 
And Paul's not done. For even Christ himself has a head. He says the head of Christ is God. This is no different than what we saw in chapter 3, verse 23, where Paul said, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Then he goes on to say, And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. That is, in his role as son, he belongs to God the Father and submits to his authority. Even though he shares the divine essence with his Father, in his role as son, he gladly accepts his Father's glorious headship. We see the same in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 28. It says, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. And who's that? Who is it that put all things in subjection under Christ? It is God, his Father. The Gospel of John is also filled with numerous examples of Christ's submission to His Father. The Father sends the Son. The Son obeys the will of the Father. The Father gives judgment to the Son. The Son honors the Father in everything. Again and again, John gives us pictures of what it means for God to be the head of Christ. So in a God-centered world... And in a community governed by Christ's glorious reign, which is to be reflected in our relationships with one another, headship is important. And headship is important because it ultimately is about God, and it is ultimately about what what God has done and accomplished in Jesus Christ. Christ had to submit to the will of the Father in order to save us. He had to leave glory, come as a man, obey His Father's will, die in the place of sinners on a cross, and be raised for their salvation. Moreover, we have to submit to Christ and His Word if we are to be saved. Spurning the headship of Christ leads to condemnation, not salvation. Man must submit to Christ by faith in order to be saved. And moreover here, husbands must submit to Christ if they are to lead their wives in ways that honor God. And wives must submit to their husbands if they are to please God by helping the church and the world see that the temporary marriage they are in is to point to an eternal love that Christ has for His bride. So headship is extremely important because it is a God issue. It is a gospel issue. It is meant to reflect God's perfect rule over His people, not merely in in the created order, but especially in the corporate worship of those people He has saved. And it's the latter aspect, God's rule, reflected in the corporate worship of the people he saved that Paul addresses in verses 4 to 6. In verses 4 to 6, Paul not only identifies a particular situation in the church where a wife might leave her physical head uncovered, he not only identifies that situation, but begins applying the truth of verse 3, which we just talked about, that everyone has a head, to that particular situation. So Paul's going to take the principle laid down in verse 3 
and apply it to the potential disorder caused by wives praying or prophesying with their heads uncovered during corporate worship. This appears to be the main issue from verse 13, where Paul says there, very plainly, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God, that is, pray to God in corporate worship with her head uncovered? That's the issue in these verses that he is applying the principle of headship to. So by applying the truth of verse 3 to that situation, Paul says this in verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, now that's his own physical head. We're going to have different kinds of heads in this passage. His own physical head means to cover his physical head with something like a, a toga or a veil or a shawl of some sort. The only other place in the Bible that we find this little expression here is in Esther 6, 12, where Haman leaves Mordecai's presence ashamed, mourning and covering his head. So every man who prays or prophesies with his physical head covered dishonors his head. And I take him and mean here a metaphorical head, meaning it's referring back to the head that he talked about in verse 3, Christ. So he dishonors Christ when he covers his physical head. Now, exactly why this is the case for the man is not real clear, at least to me. I think we get some pointers in this passage, like when verse 7 says that man reflects God's glory in a unique way. And then in verse 14, where every, for even a, a woman's natural hair covering indicates that a woman and not a man should wear a head covering. Some have suggested that it was a custom for elite Roman men to cover their heads while serving in uh, pagan temples. And Paul's instructions here will keep men from dishonoring Christ in the church by flaunting their social status like they used to do in the temples. This seems to make good sense in light of verse 7 and the Lord's Supper conflict that's coming up in verses 18 to 22. Value should should not be found in social status but in being created in the image of God and saved by Christ to reflect His glory in that image. Whatever the precise reason is, this much seems absolutely clear to me. The man shouldn't adorn himself in ways that dishonor his head, Jesus Christ, in corporate worship. The man shouldn't adorn himself in ways that dishonor his head, Jesus Christ, in corporate worship. And the same is true for wives with respect to their husbands. Paul says in verse 5, But every wife who prays or prophesies with her, again, physical head, uncovered, dishonors her head, meaning dishonors her husband. Now, unlike with the husband in verse 4, Paul does explain why the wife, not covering her head, would dishonor her husband. See the rest of verses 5 and 6. Since, he says, it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Some of you are going, what in the world are you saying, Paul? You just lost me. That's okay. I've said that to myself hundreds of times on this passage alone. 
So let me see if I can... I, the guy that's been lost a hundred of times in this passage, let me see if I can simplify it for you like this. An uncovered head, that is, the head without the veil, an uncovered head was equivalent to a shaven head on a wife. And a shaven head on a wife was disgraceful in Paul's day in the surrounding cities of Asia Minor. It was apparently socially and morally unacceptable. That's even supported from verse 15, where Paul says that the woman's naturally long hair covering is her glory. So the point of the rest of verses 5 and 6 is merely to support what he already said very plainly at the beginning of verse 5, that a wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her husband, who is her head, her authority by God's design. Praying or prophesying in corporate worship would naturally draw attention to the person prophesying and for the wife to adorn herself in ways that dishonor her husband in corporate worship would be to compromise the headship God built into his good created order and the headship which he intended to restore through Christ and put on display through his church. God did not save us then from bristling against his established headship to bring further shame upon it, he saved us to celebrate the glory of his good designs and headship before a broken world who despises it. We were transferred, as we read earlier from Colossians, we were transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son to display a new world order. God's intended order for creation Because only through his order, through this kind of headship and authority type roles, do we reflect his wisdom in the gospel. For a Christian husband or wife to act in ways that reveal no inner desire to submit to their respective heads is for them to continue in rebellion against God's perfect rule over his creation and Christ's complete rule over his church. This is why Paul says what he does in verses 7 to 9. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is ultimately creation. And a creation made for Christ and redeemed for Christ. That rests beneath Paul's theology of the husband's headship over his wife in corporate worship. Headship was not a result of the fall. Headship was not a result of the fall. In God's original creation order, spelled out in Genesis 1-2, God established headship of the husband over his wife and called it very good. Now, when Paul says that the man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man, he does not mean that woman was somehow not created in God's image. We know they are created from, in God's image from Genesis 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Moreover, Paul says in chapter 15, verse 49 of 1 Corinthians... Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, 
And he's including men and women who are going to be raised from the dead in the we. Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So Paul does not somehow, Paul's not somehow implying that women are not made in God's image. Both the man and the woman are made in God's image. What he means is that the first man and the first woman were created in different ways, in different manners, that have bearing on how every husband and every wife ought to relate to one another following them. Paul assumes here that we would understand Genesis 1.27 in light of what we read in Genesis 2. He's teaching us how to read the Bible. And in Genesis 2.7, we see a particular order. The first man, Adam, was made in God's image directly from the dust of the ground. But according to Genesis 2.21-23, God's image was given to the first woman, Eve, through the man. Okay? Through the man, as God caused a deep sleep to come over Adam took one of his ribs, and fashioned a woman from him. And not only did the woman originate from man, as we see in Genesis 2, but she was also created for the man. Genesis 2.18, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So as odd as this may sound to some of you, Ladies, according to the Bible, the man was the source and reason for the woman's existence. Now, that certainly doesn't mean that the man is somehow superior in worth to the woman. Not at all. In fact, every man since Adam and Eve has been profoundly dependent on the woman for their existence. We, talked, we heard from four guys earlier. Verses 11 to 12. Nevertheless... In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, that's a point he just covered, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. In other words, there's a mutual interdependence between men and women in creation that shows that headship does not imply superior worth, better breed, or more valuable to God. Headship refers not to the man's unique worth, but to his unique role before God and in the relationship to the woman. And the way the woman was to reflect the glory of man was to reflect through her companionship with him and alongside him, she was to reflect all God designed the man to be alongside her as representative rulers of his creation. That's what they were to be, according to Genesis 1.28, where God says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Together, the man and woman were meant to be God's representative rulers over his creation and under his care and for his glory. Psalm 8, verses 5 to 6, teaches us the same. Where he says, where the the writer uh, David says, Yet you have made him, that is the man, you have made him, 
a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. You know where I think the because of the angels comments in verse 10 comes from? Right here in Psalm 8. It's the only place where I could find glory and angels and creation and man all compacted together in one place, spelling out the same vision Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians. Angels watch you. They were there when God created the man and the woman, the first man and the first woman, and they know why you exist, to glorify the God they serve. Even Ephesians 3, chapter 10, says that part of God's design in revealing the mystery of Christ and saving us to be the church is so that his manifold wisdom might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities In the heavenly places. And that display of his manifold wisdom includes the Christ centered, spirit filled manhood and womanhood found in his church, Ephesians 5 and 6. The man and the woman were to reflect God's image in their joint rule over creation before all the angels, but in different ways. The man leading out with ultimate responsibility as the head of the woman, reflecting God's good and perfect rule over the earth, and the woman submitting herself to the man and thereby reflecting all God designed the man to be alongside her. This is how we were made to function and to relate to one another as men and women made in God's image. And that's what I think Paul's overall concern is here. If a wife desires to pray or prophesy in a church gathering, she should never do so in a way that compromises God's good order. Whether it be through inner attitudes or outward adornments, like we also see in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Timothy 2, Titus 2, 1 Peter 3, everything she does must bear witness to God's perfect design for male headship. In the Corinthian church, that meant never adorning herself in ways that dishonored her husband in corporate worship. In this case, that meant wearing a symbol of authority, something like a veil, over her head while praying or prophesying. To do otherwise would be to dishonor her husband, who who was her head, and thus fail to glorify God in corporate worship. So this much is absolutely clear to me. Biblical manhood and womanhood, as it pertains to headship in corporate worship, is meant to reflect the glory of God in at least three ways that we see in this passage. One, in how it reflects the roles of authority and submission in the Godhead and in those made in His image. It is to, display, it is to reflect the glory of God in how it reflects the roles of authority and submission in the Godhead and those made in His image. Two, in how it reflects God's perfect rule over His creation and Christ's complete rule over His church, which includes men and women serving God for a little while under the angels. 
It reflects God's perfect rule over his good creation and Christ's rule over his church. And then three, it, in how it reflects the way God intentionally made us to complement each other as men and women. In how it reflects the way God intentionally made us to complement each other as men and women. So in order to preserve the importance of headship in corporate worship settings that are meant to, glor- to honor God, Paul is telling the Corinthian church that wives must wear a head covering when praying and prophesying. And we'll talk more about what it means to prophesy when we get to chapter 14. But for now, I'll just say that chapter 14, verses 33 to 36, give us another picture, another context in which the woman's submission to, uh, plays itself out in corporate worship. And it's consistent with what Paul says here. Paul, <clears throat> Paul says here in chapter 11, what he assumes is that women will prophesy in the local assembly. And chapter 14, verses 33 to 36, prohibit women from making public evaluations of a particular prophecy based on the same pattern of headship set forth here from Genesis 2. Instead, they should evaluate the prophecy in question through their husbands at home. Now, with that clarification, most of you are wondering how I see the head covering, in particular, applying to us today in our corporate worship settings. We know what it meant for the Corinthians. And apparently, according to verse 16, all the churches of God in Asia Minor. But what about wives wearing head coverings today when they pray and prophesy in 21st American churches like we are in? I do not know yet. And it would be wrong for me to pretend that I do know. But I've at least narrowed it down to two options and I'll give them to you. One... Wives are required to wear a head covering only while praying or prophesying publicly in corporate worship. So we can wear, we mean women can wear them the whole time if they want, but Paul makes it explicit in verse 4 that it's required only while praying and prophesying. That's one. The second is this. Wives should outwardly demonstrate their submission to their husband when praying or prophesying in corporate worship. But that outward expression needs to be culturally appropriate and fitting and representative of all clear passages in Scripture on women's adornment. So think in terms of 1 Timothy 2 and Titus 2 and 1 Peter 3 and things like how the adornment should reflect humility before God. It should reflect submissiveness to one's husband. It should be feminine in attire instead of disgraceful. It should be modest instead of provocative. And it should signify that you belong to him and nobody else. Nor do you desire anybody else by the way you present yourself. So for the time being, I lean toward the second explanation and see the we have no such practice 
of verse 16 to refer to being contentious toward the apostolic principle of God-centered headship. That's spelled out in verse 3 and then applied in verses 4 to 15. Rather than the head covering in and of itself, which symbolized that headship. That's where I lean. So we still obey the apostles' instructions regarding headship, but the outward form with which we obey the passage may vary from culture to culture and must always reflect the biblical paradigms for manhood and womanhood. Now, before we pray, let me end on a much broader note of application. There are some of you hearing all this glory of headship talk today, and it's just actually crushing you. Either because you've never heard it, or because you've heard it before, and it's just reminding you of how short you fall in fulfilling it faithfully as a husband leading or a wife submitting in the home, quite apart from what happens in corporate worship. As one created in God's image, you see what your leadership before Christ and your submission to your husband ought to be. But what your sin keeps reminding you of is that you fall totally short of God's glory. You were made for a dominion alongside woman that reflects God's greatness and splendor in the earth, but all you feel is rebellion inside of you, hardships with your spouse, chaos with your children, brokenness between other family members, and nowhere else to turn. If that's you this morning, know that what you're feeling right now begs for an answer. It begs for someone outside of you who is mighty and powerful to step in and bring salvation and deliverance and healing and restoration and recreation of God's image in you. And let me remind you that Jesus Christ became a man, became that man, became that one who is mighty and powerful to step in. He became that man who reflected God's image perfectly. Colossians 1.15, Christ is the image of the invisible God. And the reason He came to bear God's image per- perfectly on earth is that through His cross and resurrection, He might create for you a new self created after the likeness and image of God. Colossians 3.15 says... An image which, a new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Moreover, even though you look around and see nothing in proper order or remotely peaceful about your dominion under Christ, remember Psalm 8? Hebrews 2 9 declares, but We do see somebody else. We do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 
And the writer of Hebrews goes on to tell us that it's through that death that he ensures that all of his sons will obtain the glory of God. So despite what's before you, we do see Jesus enthroned with absolute control and with absolute redeeming power so that one day there will be no more bristling at headship or the abuse of it either. So let me encourage you to look to Jesus this afternoon in prayer. Look to Jesus daily with your wife in the hope of His present reign and rule over everything. Look to Jesus this Wednesday with your care groups and nurture everyone that's in need of growing into the likeness of the head of the church, who is Jesus Christ, Ephesians 4.15. Speak the truth in love that we might grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Let's not fall prey to arguing for hours about a head covering while genuine desires for Christ-like leadership, Christ-like headship and submission to it flounder to the detriment of our families and the church. Do wrestle with what Paul's saying here. Right? Think over what I say, he tells to Timothy, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So care group leaders, lead your groups this week as you see fit to grow in knowing the head, Jesus Christ, whose redeeming work is sufficient, for the, to, is sufficient to meet the needs of every man and woman who calls on the name of the Lord to be saved. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this word and pray that you would grant further understanding in it that we might celebrate you through all that we do here on earth. Do display the lordship of Jesus Christ in this assembly through the way we view Christ as our head and the way we view manhood and womanhood in our relations with one another, both outside the church and inside. We ask it in Jesus' name.